welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And for the foreseeable future, John's use of the plural is something of an exaggeration. <laughs> because we're putting the saga of Ale Skattagrimson on trial. Fair enough. <laughs> this is episode four of our quest to investigate one of the most famous and beloved of the Icelandic sagas. Uh, by Icelanders, actually, as well as by saga readers more generally. Well, and as we go through this thing, you can kind of see why. I'm sure. I mean, for starters, we're on to the fourth episode of the show. Something like, what, five hours of discussion in at this stage, and we haven't actually met Ail Scott Grimson yet. It's a little ridiculous, Andy. Well, I mean, there's been a lot to talk about, and it's, it's not like we've been vamping here, John. Uh, we've been vamping a little. All right, but if we're vamping, then you're Dracula. Blah! So, the- <laughs> Blah. The first section of this saga, which we've half seriously been calling the Thorolf saga, um, it had a lot going on, and we finally wrapped that up last time. Uh-huh. Which means... Which, which means, means time for a recap. Uh, Get your yeah. fedora and foreign hand on. Uh, I got rid of my fedora. And what's a foreign hand? Last time on... Ale Saga. The escalating tension between flashy moneybags Thorolf Gvaldafsson and the jealous King Harald Fairhair reached its peak when top dog Harald ordered Thorolf to put the kibosh on his plans for dominion in the north and return to Harald's court. But Thorolf proved no easy mark, giving the king the cold shoulder over the matter. The two go their separate ways, but their antagonism really halts up as Thorolf's foes, the Hildur Edersons, continue to poison the king against him. Soon Harold is seizing land from Thorolf. Thorolf is seizing goods from Harold's ships. Men are being humiliated, killed, or maimed on both sides. And this tea kettle's about ready to sing. You seem to have become British at some point during that. <laughs> I just enjoy the accent. <laughs> A series of Viking attacks leave both men in possession of one another's ships and goods. And finally, Harold decides to make his move. Using his men, the Travel Brothers, as decoys, Harold catches Thorolf off guard at his farm. A vicious battle ends with a burning, and when the two enemies come with an ace of killing each other, Harold's luck holds out. But poor Thorolf comes a cropper. Thorolf's grief-stricken uncles seek to reconcile the king to Thorolf's family, but things go pear-shaped, like my body, when Thorolf's brother, Skullgrim, <laughs> <laughs> When Thorolf's brother, Skatlagrim, calls on Harold with a crew of shapeshifters and berserkers and offers subtle threats against the king. Not that subtle, really. <laughs> After barely escaping the king's fury, Skatlagrim and his father, Kveldulf, decide to hi-hat their way out of Norway for good. But not before attacking and killing the Travel Brothers, as a parting message to Harold. Wow. Uh, so anyway, that's why that's why readers sometimes identify those first 27 or so chapters as a separate saga. There's a lot of typical saga ending storytelling wrapped up in those last few sections. If the saga did end there, I don't think we'd go away feeling like there was anything missing. And that's a pretty impressive authorial feat. I mean, not the part about writing a, a satisfying <laughs> conclusion. Uh, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, tell it to Chaucer. <laughs> I mean, I mean that there's another saga still to go. I yeah, mean, no, he's I, packed a lot in real quick. The main saga, in fact, is what's coming. <laughs> and a remarkable amount of the detail work of that first section that we just covered mm-hmm. is going to carry over to Ail's part of the story. Yep. 
Yeah. Uh, and yet we have quite a few scholars who think that Ale's story is messy and disorganized compared mm. to what we've been reading. We've already talked about a few of those, especially last week's episode. Yeah, and I don't know that either of us agrees with that assessment completely. Yeah. I would say it's episodic, what's about to come, sure, but mm-hmm. but whether those episodes are disorganized, is that's a different matter. Well, we'll have to keep our eye on Ale as he begins his journey and see uh, how many threads there are to his story and how well the author weaves the different strands together. In the meantime, we should warn you that if you've come here looking for a sequel to the raids and farm burnings, naval battles, and berserk furies of the last couple episodes, well, you're going to be sorely disappointed with this one. <laughs> Hey, uh, instead of telling people why they shouldn't be excited about this, how about Hmm. we try to sell the merchandise a little? Push the button. All right. In this episode, Scott the Grim arrives in Iceland only to learn that Kveldolf didn't survive the journey. After burying his father, Scott the Grim sets up a network of productive farmsteads in Borgafjord. Far away from the dangerous world of Norwegian politics, he settles into a peaceful life of farming, fishing, and blacksmithing with his beloved wife Bera by his side. And the farms aren't the only things to prove fertile in Iceland. Before long, Scott the Grim and Bera welcome four healthy children into their lives. Back in Norway, a familiar story plays out again when an accomplished Viking named Bjorn falls in love with a Hersir's daughter. When her father rejects the match, Bjorn takes matters into his own hands and abducts the lovely Thora, though not entirely against her will. But rather than face the wrath of Thora's father, Bjorn sails for Iceland and settles for a time at the farm of Scott the Grim. Scott the Grim's eldest son, Thorolf, is the spitting image of his namesake. He takes a liking to Bjorn, and soon the two are best of friends. Together they travel abroad, spending the summers raiding. Just like his enthusiastic uncle, Thorolf seeks out adventure, glory, and fame. And while Thorolf shines in Norway, his younger brother Ale cuts a far more menacing figure. For a three-year-old. But don't let his age fool you. Young Ale can handle himself better than most. The trouble is, no one can handle him. Even the stalwart Scott the Grim struggles with his stubborn son. And after Ale kills a boy for doing him dirty in a ball game, a violent feud breaks out between father and son. Who will pay the ultimate price for their deadly enmity? Will Thorolf avoid the same mistakes his uncle made? Will Bjorn ever reconcile with Thora's father? And who is the best three-year-old poet in all of Iceland? Find out as Saga Thing takes on Ale's Saga, chapters 28 to 35. So, not a whole lot of killing, but a lot of story and character development. Still a little killing, though. Well, a little bit, yeah. But we're also getting to know several of the most important people in this saga at this point. And we're finally in Iceland. I think there's a lot of meat in this sandwich. All right, then. No need to shilly-shally. All ashore! Part 12. Scott Grim assimilates into the Borg, Earth Fjord. So is that a relatively rare Star Trek pun coming from John? Well, I think it's important not to be too predictable. I'm surprised. Uh, So with the deaths of his brother Thorolf and their father Kveldolf last time, Scott Legrim is heading to Iceland in need of a new start. And this next part of the story does a lot of setting up of Scott Legrim and Bera's new life in Iceland. 
Yeah, so we left off last time with Kveldolf's crew finding his coffin washed up on shore and burying him on the headland of Borgafjord. But we didn't know anything about what happened to Scotlagrim's ship once the two ships were separated in the fog. Well, I mean, I hope we didn't leave anyone feeling like that was supposed to be suspenseful or anything. Because all that happens is that Scotlagrim's ship comes safely ashore. Uh, they explore for a bit and find that the land looks good for settling. There's fish, seals, woodland. Looks great. Uh, but they push on a little bit farther, and they soon find Kveldolf's crew. Uh, the crew shows him where they buried Kveldolf, and Scott Ligrim decides to set up a farm nearby, which he calls Borg. See, you're skipping over the first winter that they spent on that peninsula, but that's... Well, but uh, that's nothing happens. Well, that was the point I was going to make, right? <laughs> it's okay. I was <laughs> going to say, skipping over okay. the nothing? It's totally okay that you're skipping over mm-hmm. it. Our author clearly wants us to get into the settling the region part of the story that he's, you know, likely drawing from La Nama book. Um, so yes. he's shortchanging some of the initial getting used to the new land stuff. Right. Well, and there's quite a bit of that settling the region story. Right? Each of the men who've been with Kveldulf and Scotlagrim are given a plot of land in the area. Yeah. It's not necessary to go into the details of who ends up living where, I think. Yeah, I mean, if you're interested, you can read chapters 28 to 30 and then flip back and forth with a map in the back of the uh, Penguin edition, which shows you exactly <laughs> where all those places are. Or I think you you've mistaken to- our hobbies for more kind of universal enjoyment. Who doesn't love a good map, John? (laughs) Anyway, much as I love a good land parcel distribution yarn, uh, we do have other things to get to. Come gather around, children, and hark to my tale of the men who divided up arable farmland in an equitable division of resources. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) a ring ding diddle diddle idee oh, a ring die diddle idee oh. Was that the Scotsman's kilt? Uh, An approximation of it? Yeah, I don't know that many folk songs. Uh, (laughs) But uh, but let's finish unpacking the ship, shall we? Uh, there are a lot of guys on Scott Legrim's boat looking for places to live, and we got to get right. them settled. Yeah, um, many of the men who now receive generous farmsteads are the same guys who went with Scott Legrim to confront King Harold. Thord Hobbler, Thorger Earthlong, Thor the Giant, Thorbjorn Hunchback, Ani and Grani, and so on. Uh, they're all still together, and they've come out to start a new life in Iceland as a team. Mm. We're getting a real sense of the loyalty these men feel for Scott Legrim's family, and mm-hmm. that's very much reciprocated through these land gifts. Although it's not really clear why Scott Legrim is the one to parcel out the lands. Well, he's the Icelandic Oprah. Uh-huh. You get a farm. You get a farm. Everybody gets a farm. Yay. Yay. Yeah, well, it's not just the people that came with him. Um, mm-hmm. As we learn in the, the coming chapters, as Harold continues to tighten his grip on Norway, more and more people are finding it intolerable to live as his subjects. Mm-hmm. So more waves of emigrants make their way to Iceland, and Scott the Grim finds room for all of them, including his father-in-law, Ingvar, and his old friend, mm-hmm. Olaf Haltfoot. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, we met Olaf's sons, Ragi, Thorarin, and Glum in Njal Saga, when Glum became the second ill-fated husband of Halgrith Longlegs. Mm-hmm. So... All of these people are getting good farmland, but Scott Ligram's also hanging on to some prime locations for himself. Yeah, the, the land gifts are very nice of him, but this is a bit like Oprah keeping like half a dozen really nice cars for herself. <laughs> well, I'm sure she does, actually. She's probably got a fleet of very nice cars. She's a very wealthy woman, Andy. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and that, but it is fairly typical, isn't it? I mean, he's using these gifts to cement his social circle and his support in the area. It's a gift culture, and this Mm -hmm. is exactly how to build a social network in medieval Iceland. It certainly is. Uh, Now, there are a couple of names dropped at this point, mostly the kids of the various settlers in this group. And some of them are going to come up 
later in our story, like Onuncioni or Keensight, the son of Ani. Uh, so we'll be coming back to this moment a few times in future episodes. All right. So now that he's found a plot of land among the expatriates in Iceland, Scott Ligram has to figure out how to make a living in Iceland, which is not easy, as mm-hmm. uh, uh, Floki found out in Vikings. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so it's a bit different from running a farm in Norway. That's what he discovers mm. very quickly. Yeah, no, that's something that historically must have been a serious learning curve for the expat Norwegians. Uh, for instance, they nearly denuded the island of every tree before figuring out that wood was actually hard to come by in Iceland. Yeah, it's not just going to grow back. Um, the, the, the sagas usually skip over that learning curve, which yeah. I guess isn't so surprising since the writers are living hundreds of years later. Mm-hmm. And they're obviously the descendants of those who did figure out how to survive in Iceland. That's true. I mean, it's a little oversimplified. There's a, there's a lot more to why this part usually doesn't make it into the sagas, but it's true. Well, why can't things be nice and simple for once, John? Do we really want to complicate this? No, no. Sometimes we have to paint in broad strokes, or we'll never get to the happy little trees. I'd rather talk for now about how Scott Legrim goes about making a success of this new start in Borgerness. Well, for starters, he keeps several farms for his own use and keeps them all running simultaneously. Mm -hmm. He keeps livestock on those farms, which are mostly free-ranging sheep who hang around the woodlands on the properties. Which, of course, means he has woodlands as well. That's right. Which is not an insignificant resource all by itself, even if it weren't full of sheep. Yeah, that provides a sideline. Uh, Scott Legrim uses his woodland to support a shipbuilding business that he has. Yeah, he's a talented man. Uh, he also collects driftwood, catches fish, hunts seals, collects seabird eggs, builds a blacksmithing forge, butchers beached whales, plants and harvests crops, builds salmon traps, and catches wild animals when he can find them. He uh, he keeps busy, in other words. Mm. <laughs> it, it really is an impressive and diverse portfolio of resources that he's got, but he does mm-hmm. have to go from farm to farm in order to get these different right. things, right? Um, we occasionally get reference to the dwindling of resources and the desperation of the early settlers to find material for sustaining their new lives, and any number of scholars have talked about this kind of right, this right, kind of yeah, thing. And, and we see the sagas themselves indirectly acknowledging it. I think through stories like this, right, or or like the fights over beached whales, or the the scanty amount of good land available to late arrivals to the island. Yeah, or, or conflicts that erupt over access to woodlands, right? Sure, alehood, right? We just we just read. Yeah, but it's a, it's another thing to see how many elements there were to a successful Icelandic household, and we got a nice little catalog here. Yeah, and this is still only one side of that story. The author doesn't mention what Bera's spending her days on, mm-hmm. uh, but resource management, textile production, food processing, general maintenance of the household would all be basic expectations, and that's before the couple starts having kids. Yeah, A good settlement couple has to be physically tireless, mentally flexible, and skilled in a number of areas. And they have to be a good team, right? Yep. Scott Legrim and Bera thrive as a partnership, and we've seen other sagas that emphasize how important a good marriage is to a successful household. This author kind of wants to have it both ways. Mm-hmm. Good marriages are important, but we also see a lot of marriages treated as a social contract, often between men who are making decisions for women. And there doesn't seem to be any major narrative consequence for that. So I'm not sure if this right. author is invested in the marriage question. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, like back in Norway, right? Uh, Sigrid Sigrid's daughter was married to Bard Brynjolfsson, Thorolf Kvöldolfsson, and Ivan Lamb in fairly quick succession and never actually consulted about any of the marriages. No. Yeah, there are hints that she's willing in the first two, but by the third marriage to Avon, uh, she's basically, she's being handed off as a consolation prize by Harold that comes with the land. Right. Sorry I killed your nephew while you watched, but... 
hey, here's a shiny new widow to make up for it. Well, they'll have some things in common to start them off, you know? Like like a mutual resentment of Harold Fairhair? Uh, you know, killed her husband, yeah. his nephew, so yeah. Sure. Uh, but there's another factor we should consider behind Scott LeGroom's success as a farming man. Um, John, he's a farmer. Okay. I feel like you're trying to bait me into saying something stupid. No. Of course he's a farmer. He's a farmer. Uh, you, do you mean oh, you mean a lifelong farmer? Exactly. That's true. He's a farmer. Scott LeGrim's been a stay-at-home kind of guy. Remember, Kveldolf mm-hmm. was a retired Viking, and Thorolf was a raider and adventurer his entire life. Scott LeGrim's been at home on the farm the entire time we've known him. He that's turns right. out to share the family knack for violence and mayhem, but that's a sideline for him. At his heart, Scott LeGrim's a man of the soil. Yeah, we haven't really talked about Scott Legrim very much yet, which makes sense. I mean, he tends to get overshadowed by his father and brother, and later by his sons, Thorolf and Ale. But in this section, we get to see him in his element, and it turns out he's a pretty impressive guy. He's very resourceful. Where other men struggle with the reduced yield of an Icelandic farm or the lack of natural resources, Scott Legrim spreads himself around quite a bit. No mm-hmm. one thing is going to trip him up because he's relying on a number of different ways of supporting his household. He's a truly independent right. man. Absolutely. And he's also a very hard worker. So much so that his farmhands begin to complain a bit about the hours he keeps. <laughs> uh, particularly since he does have this whole sideline as a blacksmith as well. Yeah. But Scott Legrim just replies with a verse. The wielder of iron must rise early to earn extra wealth from his bellows. From the sack that sucks in the sea's brother, the wind, I let my hammer ring down on the precious metal of fire, the hot iron, while the bag wheezes greedy for wind. Mm, 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 mm. See, that is... I know it's not widely acknowledged as one of the best verses in the saga, but damn, mm-hmm. I, I really like that one. It's so good. Yeah, it's it should be it should be up on the wall in every blacksmith's exactly. Forge. Yeah, I always enjoy when a verse kind of stretches beyond the usual bragging about fighting prowess. There's a nice yeah. fake out in the first two lines. The wielder of iron sets up another one of those warrior poems before the next line really reveals that the iron being wielded it hasn't been forged yet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I like the attention in that verse to the sound of the bellows. Mm. Uh, the bellows used by Scandinavians was this two-chambered thing. And it was worked so that air could be continuously forced into the coal fire. Uh, I got to play with one of those at Lanza Meadow, and it really does make a very distinctive, dual, kind of sucking and wheezing sound. Uh, and I might be imagining it, but one reason I like this a lot is that I suspect the author of hiding a rebuke to the complaining workers in the verse. Mm. The endless windbag of the forge's bellows fuels Scott Legrim's blacksmithing, just as the windbag's complaining only drives him to work harder. Hmm. I agree. You might be imagining that, but it's possible. But but, but I might not be. You might be. not be. And, and whether I am or not, the main point of this section is to demonstrate that Scott Legrim's got the strength and stamina to be a success in this brave new Icelandic world. He's steadier, more careful, and more frugal than his brother was. All right, so he is the very model of a medieval Viking settler man. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's cute. Uh, but like everyone else in the family, Scott Legrim's a little more complicated than he appears. He may be a stay-at-home, but he's also a superhumanly strong man. He's handy with an axe, 
and he's pretty clearly somewhere on the berserk, lycanthropic, trollish spectrum. He is, yeah. And we already saw Kveldulf and Scott Legrim go father and son berserk on an entire ship of men back in Norway. Yeah, but that was a run-of-the-mill battle frenzy. Scott Legrim's got something a little more unusual planned for Iceland. Uh, he's setting up his forge, but he lacks a good anvil stone to beat iron against. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read this bit. Scott Legrim put to sea one evening when everyone else had gone to bed, and rowed out to the Midfjord Islands. Then he stepped overboard, dived down into the sea, and brought back up a boulder which he put into his boat. He climbed back into the boat himself, rowed ashore, and carried the rock to his forge. He always forged iron on it after that. That boulder is still there, with a pile of slag beside it, and its top is well marked from the hammering. It has been worn by waves. It is different from other rocks in that area, and four men today could not lift it. There's a lot going on there. Uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, John, the first thing I think of when I read that passage, and now yeah. that I've been to Iceland and seen the landscape, there yeah. are r- large rocks everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but how many of them have been washed by the well, waves? Why does, but why does he need to go and get on a boat and jump into the water? And, right. There, there's big rocks all over. He could take his pick. Fair enough, but he's looking for one that's going to be strong enough to stand up to the hammer blows of, of a blacksmith. And he just happens to that's know that there'd be rock. one. It's it's just like a video game quest. This this section, right, right. <laughs> Step off of the ship in the in the deepest part of the lake. Yeah. Dive down to the bottom, yeah. and there you'll find the anvil rock. Follow your quest marker, Scott the Grim. <laughs> but um, there there. But what's really happening here is this is one of those topographic markers that we sometimes get in the saga yeah. in the sagas. Um, this is one of those topographic markers that we sometimes get in the sagas. The boulder yeah. is still there today, that kind of thing, right? It's a saga mm-hmm. writer's trick to ground the story in the landscape. And that, I see what you did ground there. It, yeah. That's not to say that the things being talked about aren't actually there. Oh, they most likely were in the 13th century. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this is one of those narrative moments when if you want to hear the voice of Snorri Sturluson in this narrative. The infamous you can, of course, the infamous Snorri in this narrative, this has that ring of personal testimony. Uh, I can't remember whether we brought this up before, but in the 13th century, Snorri actually lived here. Mm-hmm. Right? He lived at this same farm at Borg that Scott Legrim is setting up. He lived there for several years. Yes, yes. Yeah, we haven't mentioned that. Now, that's a whole story by itself, and we'll save it for the eventual episode that we're going to do on Snorri that's coming up soon. Mm-hmm. But yes, he's talking about the features of the area around a farm he knew intimately. Now, that's not necessarily proof that what he's saying is true. Oh, no, no, of course but not. But it, it certainly is an interesting point if you're inclined to believe the arguments for Snorri's authorship. Okay. I'm more interested in what this says about the family line that we're establishing here. Scott Legrim does all this boulder fetching at night, presumably when his ability to call on his strength is at its greatest. Which means he's inherited the same kind of berserk lycanthrope qualities his father had. Hmm. Well, remember, Kveldulf's name meant Night Wolf, right? Night Wolf. Mm -hmm. Uh, A name he was given because of persistent rumors that he changed shape at night. Yep. And he he also had a dangerous tendency to become more uncontrolled and stronger as darkness fell. Yeah, that seems like something you'd want to keep an eye on if, say, you were Scott the Grim or Bera and you were planning on starting a family in Iceland. Well, that was nicely ominous. Part 13. How to use the three seashells. <laughs> Look, uh, I don't know if you guys know, but 
you're out of toilet paper. Oh, uh, you. So you don't know how to use the three seashells. <laughs> um, this is either a new low or a new high for us, John. I don't know. I can't decide. <laughs> Uh, just trust us, folks. This is not irrelevant. That title will make sense later. <laughs> yeah, but the uh, the Stallone impression doesn't. Um, but uh, yeah, so <laughs> don't don't spoil it for the three people who got it. Uh, so now that Scott Lagrim and Bera have their lives in Iceland ticking over nicely, they've started to turn their attention to raising a family. Oh, how sweet! But, yeah, but there's a problem. It's a fairly significant one. Mm-hmm. So uh, Scott Lagrim and Bera have several children. But they all die, with no explanation given whatsoever. Although mm-hmm. you can understand that given the circumstances in Iceland. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but eventually they're fortunate enough to have their luck change. First a son is born who survives, and then two daughters, and finally another son. The older son is given the name Thorolf in honor of Scott the Grimm's brother. Yeah, it's not necessarily the most auspicious name to carry in this saga. But we'll see if uh, Thorolf Mark II can do better than his predecessor, even though he takes after his uncle in a lot of ways. He does, yeah. The text says of him, Thorolf far excelled boys of his age and strength. As he grew, he became accomplished in most of the skills that gifted men practice. He oh. was fair, a cheerful character, and as powerful as a youth as most able-bodied men were when full-grown. Well, he sounds like quite a fellow. Yeah, he's pretty great. But he's got that legacy hanging over him, not just the name. Mm-hmm. The more outgoing members of the family tend to get themselves in trouble. Okay, Skaldagrim and Bera then have two daughters, uh-huh. Sion and Thorun. Both of them are also healthy and promising children. And they'll have their role to play in this saga. Though like many daughters and sisters in Icelandic literature, they'll mostly be in the background. And then there's that second son. Yes, indeed. And here we have our first look. At the one, the only, Ale Scott Lagrimson. And there was much rejoicing. <laughs> well, it only took three and a half episodes, but we found him. Yep. <laughs> so what what kind of first impression does our boy Ale make? Well, I think we'll let the author have the first word here. Uh, All right. Scott Lagrim and his wife had another son who was sprinkled with water and named Ale. As he grew, it soon became clear that he would turn out very ugly and resemble his father with black hair. When he was three, he was as strong as a boy of six or seven. He was talkative at an early age and had a gift for words, but was difficult to deal with in games with other children. Nice. Uh, Is there anything else about him that we should know? Well, he's a mean drunk. (laughs) He's three, though. How can he be a mean drunk? Yes, and he's a mean drunk. I mean, how do you learn that a three-year-old is a mean drunk? Well, I mean... <laughs> don't, don't answer that. I know you have young children, so maybe you do know. Uh, I don't think there's any answer that wouldn't be a felony in at least uh, 20 states, so you should just be quiet. Well, I was just going to say that we can read the saga. See, Scott Lugram's father-in-law, Ingvar, who, as we said, is now living in the neighborhood, throws a big springtime bash at his place, and he invites the whole family at board. When the time comes for the party, Thorolf is allowed to go along, but Ale is left back at the farm. And when he complains that it's not fair, which is just a three-year-old response, not fair, <laughs> uh, Scott Legrim says, you're not going because you don't know how to behave yourself when there's heavy drinking. Besides, you're enough trouble when you're sober. <laughs> <laughs> Can you, ma- 
imagine saying that to your three-year-old son? <laughs> You're enough trouble yes, when you show me. <laughs> given given my sons, yes, I can imagine saying. Oh that. my goodness! Okay, is the problem that Ailes already got a reputation as a mean, as a mean drunk, or is it that he's trouble enough already, and the idea of him getting his hands on strong booze is terrifying? I hope it's the latter. Right. Well, like any three year old at a party, right, running around trying to get a sip off daddy's beer. Uh, Or is the question the problem that he's a typical three year old and just doesn't know how to behave at a grown up party? I mean, they're all possible. I don't know. Yeah, it was probably the second one. Right. I think he's a mouthy troublemaker of a kid and trying to keep him under control at a party where the mead is flowing is worrying. Yeah. I like the idea that he's already been getting into the household booze at least once and causing chaos. Uh, but to me, this seems more like the frustration of a parent whose three-year-old has been driving him nuts lately. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely uh, that the kids it drives him nuts, and the prospect of bringing yeah. this kid around a place where there's free-flowing alcohol just is—it's right. not a good idea. Someone's well, going to end up dead. You know, yeah, when you're a parent with a young kid at a party, you can't really relax and enjoy yourself. Uh, no, keep I, the kid from ruining it. I, I think you you vividly remember uh, a party with my daughter eating too much chocolate. And, uh, <laughs> oh God! And I had to catch her vomit in my oh, in my bare that was, hands. That was truly unfortunate. Oh, it was terrible. Uh, uh, also, a bit any... of a, a preview of Ale's future life. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah, you got to wait a couple episodes for that, but uh, it's coming. But in any case, it's it's all a moot point in terms of whether he gets drunk or is just sassy, uh, because mm-hmm. Ale doesn't have any intention of being left behind. As soon right. as his family is out of sight. He climbs onto a pack horse and rides off after them. And there's a kind of endearing little narrative about Ale having a hard time on the trip because he doesn't know where he's going because he's three. Yeah, he's three. <laughs> but eventually he does follow his family's track, which is impressive, all the way to Ingvar's farm. Yeah, I, I imagine him making one of those dotted line family circus maps as he travels. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. <laughs> the adventures of young Ale. We could have like a, a family circus comic strip. This is, where he out there be- he, this is where he beat up a dead walker. This is <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, but he does he does eventually get there, and his grandfather, Ingvar, is amused by the whole thing and gives Ale a seat mm-hmm. of honor at the feast, which I'm sure Scott the Grim is really <laughs> excited about. Uh-huh. And since everyone is taking turns making up poetry as they drink, Ale catches on quickly and composes his first verse. I have come in fine fettle to the hearth of Ingvar, who gives men gold from the glowing curled serpent's bed of heather. I was eager to meet him, shedder of gold rings, bright and twisted, from the serpent's realm. You'll never find a better craftsman of poems three winters old than me. And we're off. Mm-hmm. What do you mean, though? The poetry? Ale's poetry. Yeah. Uh, this saga is a showcase for a legendary poet. But in the first 30 chapters, you'd never know it. Uh, now we're getting just a taste of that aspect of the poem. And some scholars argue pretty hard for Ale's poems as the centerpiece of this saga. Or even that they're the seed the entire saga grows from. Certainly Ale's legendary status. And we should be clear that there is a body of poetry credited to Ale Scott the Grimson. Ale's fame in later centuries was partly tied to his poetry. Yeah, of course, it also helps that Ale's descendants were famous in their own right. True. And that the family farm at Borg became a hugely important place in the Sterling Age. This is one of those moments when 
clearly distinguishing between the historical reality of Iceland and the oral and literary transmission of Iceland, Icelandic history gets seriously difficult. It does seem, though, like either way, Ale comes out smiling. I mean, mm-hmm. he is a popular figure with a folk heroic status, after all. Right, but how much of that originates in his poetry as opposed to the success of his descendants or his supposed biography and his status as a huge thorn in the side of the Norwegian kings? Yeah. I think that's much harder to sort out. Uh, well, and we'll talk about this in the saga brief, but the fact mm-hmm. that the guy who wrote a whole textbook on how to write uh, poetry <laughs> uh, uh, might is, be the author of this. Probably the author saga. of this, yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, anyway, from a narrative perspective, Ale anticipates his later fame a bit. He says, mm-hmm. "You'll uh, in that poem, he says, you'll never find a better craftsman of poems three winters old than me. Which, I mean, to be fair, is probably an accurate statement. Yeah, I mean, he's the best three-year-old poet. Uh, that can't be a hotly contested title in any, any nation. <laughs> uh, and we've seen a mirror of this before, right? Ailes three, and a saga trope is that three-year-olds show signs of their future potential. Sure. Usually that's a kid showing a talent for violence and mayhem, or at least superhuman strength. But Ailes an unusual saga hero. Showing his future potential by offering a story of his poetic skill is in keeping with what's going to be a saga full of surprises. Well, I mean, his grandfather is certainly impressed with Ale's bloody-minded stubbornness, as well as with his poetry. Uh, He makes a point of repeating the poem for the gathered guests. And the next day, he rewards Ale by giving him his first reward for a poem. Three seashells and a (laughs) duck egg. Oh, great. And Ale... (laughs) who isn't a man to miss a chance, responds with another poem during that night's drinking. The skillful hardener of weapons that peck wounds gave eloquent ale in reward three shells that rear up ever silent in the surf. That upright horseman of the field where ships race knew how to please ale he gave him a fourth gift, the Brook Warbler's favorite bed. Once again, the poem goes over really well, and Ale is the hit of the party. Sort of. His father responds with a stony silence, and no indication is given of his thoughts about his precocious little lad. Yeah. And, you know, Grandpa Ingvar is kind of stirring the pot there. Oh, he is. He, he probably sees Gallagher's face. Oh, like, yeah. But he, here we go. He, pl- he places Ale directly across from Scott Legrim at the table at mm-hmm. night, just so that they can stare at each other all night long. <laughs> right. Uh, so we're already getting a few hints about Ale's character. And as we've seen before, this author is packing a lot into a few lines, right? We can already see that mix of characteristics that's going to make Ale so fascinating as an individual. Some of that isn't immediately obvious, but yes. Uh, as we'll see, Ale sort of arrives in the story fully formed for us. Even as a three-year-old, he's willful and mouthy, fiercely independent, and he sets his mm-hmm. jaw to do whatever he wants, whenever he I'm, wants. I'm sorry, you think this is unusual for a three-year-old? How many kids have you had? Uh, good point. Uh, I have three kids, uh, but only one of them's a boy, and he's a very sweet little guy. <laughs> I've met your daughters. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, how's this? Even for a three-year-old, he's mouthy and willful. That's much better. Okay. Uh, I'll buy that. And it's interesting to think of Ale as fully formed. But when you put it like that, it's almost 
more like Ale just remains truer to his childhood self than most people do, right? than most Icelanders do. Yeah. You, so you remain. You mean that he remains childlike or childish? Well, I suppose childlike, but in the sense that he never really develops the filters that most people do. Mm. The ones that keep us from giving offense to others or allow us to function within and perpetuate the rules of a society that most of us live by. Yeah, we're getting a little ahead of the text here, but it's important to lay our cards on the table. So, Well, I mean, this is a saga with a lot going on. Right? We're only reacting to one very small episode here. Uh, well, we're not alone in thinking that this is an introduction that carries a lot of narrative weight. Russell Poole says, In a schema where the child is father to the man, this episode aptly foreshadows Ailes Bravura as a poet, and a socially and geographically mobile poet at that. That's always struck me as an odd expression, the child is father to the man. Well, it's a bit fatalistic, really. Well, but I do think we can learn something of lasting importance about Ale at this early stage in his career. His essence is in his portrayal as a man willing and able to live as himself, entirely, with all the breaks off. So to give just one example, in a society that treats self-control as a quality almost inseparable from admirable conduct, Ale is constantly giving vent to his emotions. Yeah, which is it's it's so fascinating to me because he doesn't really fit into the 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 kind of standard of what you'd expect of an Icelandic male, right? Um, in terms of what the, all the other sagas lay out for us, um, mm-hmm. and yet he's so attractive to us as a modern audience. I I've taught right. this saga before among many other sagas, and Ale always hits with the students. Absolutely. They find him disturbing, but he <laughs> hits with them. You know, yeah, um, in yeah. ways that other people don't. Um, I, I'm really curious how 13th century Icelanders would have read him and then 14th and 15th century Icelanders. But it does seem that modern Icelanders feel the same way my students do. He's a riot. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, they love him. Uh, I think what's definitely coming across here is that Ale is both unpredictable and unusual. And that's something that's widely marked by people reading the saga. Yeah. We could easily spend an hour just reading off everything that's been written about Ale's personality. But uh, as much as I want to, we're not going to do that. Yeah, you're welcome, by the way. Uh, besides, I think we can shortcut the entire conversation because Lawrence Deleuze has summed it up pretty well. Uh, and I'll just read here. Scholars have noted the Odinic aspects of Ale, his ugliness, his aggression, and even cruelty, but also his skill with words. He is an outsider, hostile to society, cantankerous and violent. Ale is both good and bad, generous and selfish, an enigmatic, ambiguous self that has struck readers at times as being downright bizarre. That last part really, <laughs> just like Ale, kind of comes out of nowhere. Yep. <laughs> all right. But all of that is getting a little bit head, ahead of ourselves. But it is important, just like a saga, to lay out kind of the character before you mm-hmm. really see what he does. Um, yeah. And it really, it's not time to be making Odin comparisons just yet, is it? Well, okay, no, but it's on the horizon. Uh, for now, Ale goes back to the family farm at Borg, basking in his success as a party crasher. And buckling down to the serious business of growing up as a child of the Icelandic settlement age, and either hatching or eating that duck egg. Sure, and figuring out what the seashells are for. But <laughs> we're going to have yeah, to leave. I mean, what, are you, what are you going to do with them? Oh, sly, you're back. Uh so we're going to have to leave Ale on the farm for a bit because it's time for another in a series of Ale's Saga Digressions. Oh, great. Part 14, The Bjorn Ultimatum.
you know what? I have nothing to say about that title, except <laughs> that uh, I hope that there's a car chase and a really good fight scene in this section. Uh, I make no promises, but you clearly did have something to say about that title. Just a little something. So we finally <laughs> introduced our protagonist, and now we're just dumping him right away. You're not going to see Ale for a while. That is the case, yes. This had better be good. A fight scene, a car chase, or a boat chase. I offer you nothing. <laughs> I make no promises. No, we have to we have to monkey around a bit with the sequence of events in this part of the saga for reasons that will become clear as we go forward. Yeah, the timeline's already messy in the saga. Well, all right, so it's clear now. Uh, yeah, this part of the saga is telling multiple stories at once, and the timelines are a little wonky. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to sort things out as best we can. So which story are we going to do first here? Well, as the section title suggests, this is going to be the story of Bjorn Brindelson. Those names are awfully familiar, John. Yes, it is. Uh, but this is a bit misleading. This is the story of Bjorn Brindelson. But the reason we care is that Bjorn and his wife are going to be the parents of a little girl named Oscard. Hmm. And Oscard is going to be very important later on. Uh, but first, we have to get to know her father and her father's friendship with Thorolf Scotland See, already this is confusing. Yep. We should say that this isn't the same Thorolf, obviously. This is Ail's older brother. Correct. It's also, as you suggested, not the same Brindelson. Uh, Thorolf the Elder had his friend Bard Brindelson, but this isn't the same family. See, I mean, it's all so on the nose. Uh, are there really <laughs> that many Brindelsons in this saga? Are yeah, there really that, that many Brindelsons in medieval Iceland? <laughs> Right. While you're at it, start counting the kettles in this saga as well. <laughs> All right. So uh, tell us about Bjorn Brunjolfsson. Well, Bjorn is the grandson of a famous raider, also named Bjorn. Surprise, surprise. Uh, like, I know. Like his grandfather, Bjorn is a bit of a hothead, an accomplished raider, and an enthusiastic traveler. We'll be calling him Bjorn the Herser. And one day, Bjorn's travels take him to a feast at the home of Thor Hrolsson in Norway, where he meets a beautiful young lass and falls in love. That is uh, Thor Holdson, who I think we inserted just as an aside because the saga did very, very quickly at the end of the last episode. Right. I think he only came up very briefly. Right. So Earl Hrold is a friend of the Kveldo family. Like, actually, they're, they're really close friends. His mm-hmm. son... Thorer Holson was fostered by Kveldolf. So Thorer and Scott the Grim grew up as foster brothers, and they've remained really good friends. Yeah, I hope everyone got their pencils out for this one. Uh, so Thorer and Scott the Grim are friends, foster brothers, and of the same generation. Right. Meanwhile, like many other men, Prold went into service to King Harold Fairhair. Mm-hmm. Years later, Prold has sadly passed away. So Scott the Grim's friend Thorer is now a well-established earl in Fjordana, in Norway, and Bjorn the Hairseer has fallen in love with Thorir's sister, Thora of the Embroidered Hand. Ah, uh, a lady worthy of consideration for best nickname. I assume that we're going to be hearing about her at some point. Yeah, I think so. That's uh, very likely. Uh, I'm, thinking, so Thor- uh, I'm thinking birthmark, and if you don't mention birthmarks and things like that as you cover her, then I'm going to be very disappointed. I'm not, uh, I'm not tipping my embroidered hand. Uh, so Thorer, as the nearest living relative, has the happy job of blessing his sister's marriage to young Bjorn. Happy days. Try again. Thorer, who's an earl and a man of great wealth, doesn't exactly like the idea of his sister marrying a marauding Viking. 
So he turns Bjorn down outright. Um, I feel like I already know the answer to this, but did anyone ask Thora? No, explicitly, no. Of course not. Uh, but subsequent events <laughs> seem to suggest that Thora is more in favor of the match than her brother is. Mm-hmm. That fall, Bjorn returns to Thora's home, and he and his men abduct Thora and sail back to Bjorn's father's farm in Ireland. Oh, dear. Now, that's interesting. So, Brynjolf's farm. Uh, if listeners aren't familiar with Norway, this isn't as clear. But Ireland is actually pretty close to Fjordan. So, it's not like Bjorn has fled to some place where Thora can't find him. Absolutely not. Also, it's his father's farm, which is also a pretty obvious place to start looking for them if you're Thorir. <laughs> Fair point. But Brynjolf immediately understands the situation. He's furious with his son for picking a fight with a local earl. Rather than marrying Thora here in my house without the permission of her brother, she shall live here for the winter, as if she were my daughter and your sister. Ooh, so no marital bliss is what he's saying. Neither hanky nor panky. No, no. Bjorn has to live with this for the winter, the woman uh-huh. he loves, in the position of his sister. And right. in the meantime, Thorir and Brynjolf exchange messages. Uh-huh. Thorir demands Thora's return, but Bjorn refuses to allow her to be taken from him, so it's all a bit of a mess. It's a huge mess. Even putting aside the question of Thora's consent in all this, which is a lot to put aside... The legal situation here is extremely dicey for Bjorn and Brynjolf. Uh, Kristen Siever says about the story that Bjorn's hasty action has serious legal consequences for his entire family and for a long time into the future. As we'll see, abducting a freeborn woman from her family is, legally speaking, not much differentiated from a sexual assault. And that is a killing offense. Right. And as Siever notes, Thora's consent is legally irrelevant. Even if she did want to go with Bjorn, and we don't know for sure whether she goes willingly or not, but even if she does, her brother's consent had explicitly been refused, which means he now has a right to seek revenge. Absolutely. And here's the big distinction between this episode and the episode with Brynjolf in the Thorolf saga side of things. Brynjolf steals a woman, but he does it with the express consent of her father. In this right. particular case... Coerced consent, but still Coerced consent. consent, but it was consent, so it doesn't really matter what she had to say about it. Um, in this Correct. particular case, whether the woman wants to or not is irrelevant because she wasn't given by her guardian. Right. Pretty well, important. he was asked and explicitly refused consent, and so now it becomes a matter for feud right, or for compensation. Absolutely. Yeah, this is another example of how in the sagas, male honor can become the criteria by which wrongs against women are judged. Right. Or to think about it another way, a woman's honor in these stories isn't perceived as her private affair. Mm-hmm. It's considered to be inextricably linked to her family, especially to its male members, so to speak. Well said. Absolutely. And Bjorn seems to understand that he's created a bad situation for himself. In the spring, he decides to return to his ocean adventures. He asks his father for a longship and a crew so that he can go back to raiding, but his father isn't a fool. He looks at his son and says, You can't expect me to let you have a warship and a big crew of men. For all I know, you might turn up where I'd least prefer you to go. Ah, These kids today. uh, But I'll give you a trading ship and cargo. Go to Dublin, which is the best journey anyone can make at present. 
and Bjorn meekly accepts the offer of taking the cargo ship instead of the longship, which is a military vessel. Now, it's always a nice change of pace when a tertiary character in a story isn't an idiot. Uh, now, of course, yes. Brynjolf might want to think a little harder about his son's quick and meek agreement. He might, yeah, because Bjorn's got a cunning plan. Oh, it's been a while. Uh, when the time comes to leave, Bjorn sneaks into his mother's room and asks her to let Thora go with him. That's the cunning plan? Ask mom for help? Pretty much, but he needed the boat to sail to his mother's house, and well, his mother enough. lets Thora go. And she even goes as far as to instruct the other women present to keep their mouths shut to avoid causing trouble. Right. Um, as opposed to, say, a second abduction of Thora, which should be just fine and not cause any trouble at all. Well, not right away. And if you go far away, far <laughs> enough, then it's... Who knows? <laughs> so Bjorn does go far away. He sails to mm-hmm. the Shetlands, where he and Thora hide for the summer, and where they are formally married. But... Well, that's, again, that's that's uh, formally married from one point of view. Sure. Right. Thora the Hairseer has what I think we can call a different opinion about the subject. Thorir hasn't been idle during all of this, of course. He's been off visiting the king and pouring on the charm, and mm-hmm. and it works. The King Harold loves charm. And yep. it, he sends out word throughout the north that Bjorn Brunjolfsson is to be killed on sight. Oh, that's not great. No, it isn't. Uh, what that means is that Bjorn has been outlawed, and anyone mm-hmm. can kill him with impunity. There's no feud vengeance, no cost to the uh, the killing at all. Right. And whoever does kill him will probably be King Harold's new favorite person. So maybe this whole abducting the Earl's sister plan could have used a second draft. Well, nobody really does second drafts in the early stages of their development. So Fair enough. Fortunately, Bjorn and Thora got out of Norway before that order went out. Unfortunately... Harold has messages sent to the Hebrides, Ireland, the Orkneys, and the Shetlands. It's good to be right. Clean. Yeah. So as you said before, they get away. But the question is, how far is far enough in the North Atlantic now that Harold has taken control of Norway? Mm-hmm. Uh, what Bjorn and Thora need at this point is a safe haven. Hmm. A, a place beyond the reach of Harold's agents. Hmm. A place, if you will, where they like, can go like, for- like Iceland. It's Iceland, everyone. <laughs> They're going to Iceland. Yeah, don't mind me. I was just trying to create a bit of suspense there. Uh, Yes, it's Iceland. uh, One of the few places where Harold's writ does not run. And it's not long before Bjarne remembers his dad's old friend, Scott Legrim, and decides to look him up. Mm -hmm. Scott Legrim is delighted to see Thora, the sister of his old foster brother, Thora Hroldson. And she's Mm -hmm. looking so well, and he's happy to give the newly married couple a place to stay and... This is probably the best piece of evidence that Thora actually did consent to being abducted, since she and Bjorn both keep their secret for weeks as they stay with Scott Legrim. Right. So, yeah, just to be clear here, what's happening is that Scott Legrim has now welcomed the sister of his foster brother and the man who abducted her under the false belief that they have been married with the consent of their families. Yes. Uh, and this is fine as long as no one from Norway stops in at Scotlandgrim's farm before winter. Sure, which of course means that a ship from Norway rolls into Bjorgafjord just <laughs> before the winter begins, and the sailors are full of gossip about the bold Bjorn Brunjolfsson who abducted an earl's sister. Oh. Well, that's just super awkward. Very much so. Uh, 
understandably, Scott Legrim is furious, mm-hmm. but Bjorn claims that he didn't lie. He and Thora are married. And it's not his fault that Scott Legrim never thought to ask whether Thora's brother had approved the match. That's right. <laughs> it's a bold strategy, but it doesn't really cut any ice with Scott Legrim, no. who's just learned that he's essentially been tricked into helping out with the abduction of his foster brother's sister. That's right. Yeah, Bjorn says something like, you can't blame me for not telling you the whole truth. <laughs> it's a really funny line. Oddly enough, Scott Legrim thinks he can. Yeah. So when you put it that way, all of this sounds really bad. But fortunately, yeah, well, it is. Sc- Thorolf Scott Legrimson steps in to plead Bjorn's case. Essentially, he argues that since Bjorn and Thor have already been invited into the home of Borgafjord, it would be a stain on Scott Legrim's honor to turn them over to Thorir. So this this guest culture, this gift culture, mm-hmm. all that stuff are really coming in. Um, and right. eventually, Scott Legrim kind of gives in to his son. Well, Thorolf, you can take care of Bjorn then and treat him as well as you please. So is he just giving in on this because it's already too late? Or because he's actually been persuaded by Thorolf's argument. I mean, you, you have to assume it's the former, right? I, I think so. It, it, it is too late. I mean, Scott Legrim has already accepted them in and allowed them to act as a married couple under his roof. It would be complicated, to say the least, to try to return Thora to her brother now and think that everything would be fine. Yes. Remember Seaver's point, right? This isn't really about Thora. It's about the fact that Thora said no and Bjorn took her anyway. Yeah, and now that Bjorn's been outlawed, he really can't be exposed to any Norwegian without that risk of someone's going to try to kill him on Harold's say-so, right? Sure. Bjorn's yeah. an outlaw, and the only solution to that is either remain on the run or or else try to reconcile the situation with Thorir. Right, so ultimately, Scott Legrim is giving permission to Thorolf to try to find a way to reconcile Bjorn and Thorir. That's not an easy job. No, but he manages it somehow. Over mm-hmm. the next year, messengers managed to heavily imply to Thorir that Scott Legrim's family only took the renegades in so as to effect a resolution on Thorir's behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, all of this is, by the way, settling out much, much nicer than the uh, situation that resulted in the Hilda Reedersons. Um, Absolutely right. Right. Meanwhile, Thorolf sends men to Bjorn's father, Brunjolf, and convinces him to offer compensation to Thorir for Bjorn's rash actions. And that is eventually what happens. Right. Now, at this point, that's really the best deal anyone's going to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorir gets compensation for the insult to his honor. Brynjolf smooths over the rift his son created with the powerful Earl who lives next door. Bjorn gets his outlawry reversed and the ability to return to Norway safely. And Thora gets an honorable marriage, although it still isn't entirely clear that it's one she's chosen. What a great soap opera this is. Isn't it, though? <laughs> I mean, this whole the whole saga, aside from, well, I mean, you get killings and soap operas, too. The whole thing's a great soap opera. There you go. And this is a neat bit of work by Thorolf. It is. A young man, a fairly young man, right? Mm-hmm. He's starting to fulfill his early promise as a charismatic and outgoing young man who's very, very noble, upstanding. He is indeed. Uh, the whole resolution of this situation is clever, but it works out in part because it's being arbitrated by a third party. Sure, which is how arbitrations work. Yep. The demands of honor are such that it can be nearly impossible for opposing sides to come to an amicable solution to a problem without one side suffering a serious or even catastrophic loss of honor. Uh-huh. Uh, but third-party arbitrators can get things moving, right? often just by presenting a resolution as a compromise so that no one feels wounded. 
Right. And maybe even both sides feel that then they look magnanimous for agreeing with a neutral figure. Right. You don't want to agree with the person who you're fighting against. Right. Right. But you want to look reasonable. And once a third person is suggesting the solution, it's only reasonable to be open to that. Yeah. Which is why arbitrators are so important. Now, sometimes that involves the arbitrator laying out some cash to smooth the way or involving himself in some other way in the stakes being exchanged. Uh, doing that can make clear his preference for this nonviolent solution to the problem. Go way back to Erbage's saga, and we had that moment when Thord Yeller uh, married into one of the families in the dispute that he was settling between the Thor's Nessings and the Kalaklings. Mm-hmm. It's a good example of that. Yeah. And in this situation, all Thorolf really has to do is point out that everyone involved stands to lose honor if a reconciliation can't be reached, and then wait for that to sink in. Mm-hmm. Again, it's, it's a neat bit of work. Oh, there's one more thing we have to mention. Right, yes. So Bjorn and Thora spend another couple of years living at Borgafjord, uh, but they do mm-hmm. eventually decide to return to Norway once everything's resolved. But they leave a little something behind to remember them by. Something? Well, someone. While all this was going on and messages were flying back and forth across the sea, Thora did give birth to a baby girl named Asgert. And mm-hmm. as an acknowledgement of the debt they owe to Skatagrim, they agree to leave the girl to be fostered at Borgafjord alongside Thorolf's little brother, Ale. Well, that's nice. Isn't it, though? So, it's like, I, hey, it's hard enough to survive in Iceland. <laughs> Here's another mouth to feed. Right. So, I mean, this was a hell of a long story to get us to this point. Ale, Thorolf, and Asgard all living together at Borgafjord. Oh, it's beautiful. But now that we have all of that set up, it's time to return to our young Ale and see how his childhood has been going since the the duck egg incident. I've got a bad feeling about this. Part 15. Kill a man, and then another. All right. We're already on part 15, and we haven't really gotten that <laughs> So uh, this is a part where we have to explain ourselves a bit. What did you do now? What's going to happen here? This is a team exercise. What we did is to decide to reorder a couple of events in this part of the saga. Oh, that, yes. Uh, Mainly, we've just moved a story about Thorolf and Bjorn out of the way, and we'll cover it in our next episode. Right. So we did mention this a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. But if you're following along with us in the actual saga, we're going to be skipping chapters 36 to 39 for now and going back to them in the next episode because it kind of makes more sense. Yeah, there are good reasons for doing this, trust us. We're trying to keep the timeline as clear as possible. Uh, So right now, we're jumping ahead a few chapters to chapter 40. We're going to cover Ail's boyhood from about 6 to 12. Ah, they grow up so fast. Well, Ail certainly does. Uh, When he's 6, he's playing in local ball games and wrestling 11 and 12-year-olds in the neighborhood. He's a good wrestler and strong enough to beat most boys, but he's also short-tempered and violent and most parents in the area just tell their kids to let the ale win. <laughs> and there's the Star Wars joke. I knew there, you couldn't there, help yourself. There, there is, yes. But we're professionals here, Andy, please. <laughs> professionals that make asses of themselves. So, <laughs> Ale's involved in local sports because his father, Scott the Grimm, is a helicopter parent, right? What? No. Uh, well, actually, yeah, kind of. No. Uh, he's a... He's a big fan of sports himself, and he enjoys playing ball games and watching sports or even just talking about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also still considered the strongest guy in the area, even though he's uh, getting up there in age. He also owns the whole area. So, like, of course, they're like, he's the strongest guy in the area. 
Right. He and gave a lot of poverty. Ale may not be the only guy people are letting win. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. And these ball games are always so fascinating to me, but unfortunately, we don't know many rules for the gameplay. But what we do know mm-hmm. is that these games often erupt into violence, which is great. Absolutely. Uh, remember in Gizli Saga, we saw uh, Gizli and Thorgrim Gothi exchanging insults and blows during a ball game. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at, at one point, uh, Gizli threw the ball at Thorgrim so hard it knocked him face first into the dirt, right? Uh, yep. As for the rules, uh, since they aren't consistent from one story to another, uh, we have to assume, well, probably, that a variety of skill-based ball games are being played, or else that they're playing Viking Calvin Ball, and they're just making it up as they go along. So now that you say that, I, I really want to play Viking Calvin Ball, and I think my son would like to do it too. Yeah, I kind of do too. <laughs> We've got to figure that out. But for now, what's important is that both Scott the Grim and Ale are participating in these games. Mm-hmm. And they usually have another kid along with them. One of those guys who sailed to Iceland with Scott the Grim, a little man named Grani, has raised a son, Thord Granison. Mm-hmm. Thord's about 14 at this point, and Thord is close with Ale, so much so that Ale rides with him to the game days when his father can't make the trip. Right, so one's... Fine spring day is a series of ball games organized between men and boys from all over the district. Scott Legrim stays home, but Thord and Ale take part in age-segregated games. Mm, like uh, like a, a Pop Warner Viking Calvin Ball kind of thing. I guess. We had uh, Dwarf Giraffe League in my neighborhood. Shout out to Whitestone Queens, I guess. <laughs> uh, since Ale is usually able to handle older kids easily, he gets paired off against an 11-year-old named Grim Hegison. Mm-hmm. When the game starts, it becomes clear that, like Ale, Grimm is precociously strong. But he's also five years older, so he's kind of wiping the floor with the kid. Mm. He's also a terrible show-off, so he keeps flaunting his strength and doing pose-downs for the crowd while Ale is eating dirt. <laughs> yeah, I believe this is what is known as taunting the dynamite monkey. <laughs> Except the monkey is a kid with a genetic background of shape-shifting troll berserks. Well, y- Really? Dynamite troll berserks? Don't taunt the shape-shifting were-berserks, John. Very dangerous. Were-berserks? Can we shorten that to were-berserk? Sure. Don't taunt the dynamite (laughs) were-berserks. Fair enough. You've been warned, people. Uh, So Ale, unsurprisingly, comes bouncing up from the dirt, grabs a bat, and tees off on Grimm. There's a (laughs) bat in the game now. Uh, I'm telling you, this is Calvin Ball. Uh, But Grimm really is a strong kid, so he shakes off the blow from the bat, grabs Ale, and slams him into the ground again. Ouch. Yeah. And then Grimm presumably throws Ale with a suplex off the top rope while the crowd cheers him on. Woo! (laughs) No. Ale just skulks off while the boys in the game laugh at him. Oh, see, now I just feel bad for him. This is bullying. Uh, Does it help if I tell you he comes back with an axe? Uh, Well, it helps a little, yeah. Well, Ale didn't leave the sports meet. He just ran over to Thord Granison, who loans him an axe. So the 14-year-old is carrying an axe at the ballgame. Yep. I know this isn't the first time we've seen this sort of thing, but I think once in a while it's worth pointing out. Yeah, and he's lending his axe to a six-year-old, which is almost certainly not covered by the warranty. The axe warranty, of course, in medieval Yes, sure. <laughs> so the two of them go back to the kids' game, where Grimm has just caught the ball and is running with it. But Ale charges straight onto the pitch, runs up to Grimm, and buries the axe in his head, killing him with a single blow. It's all fun and games till someone gets an axe in the skull. 
Yeah. As you might expect, that puts an end to the ball game. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I know the sagas present a world in which violence is a regular occurrence, but Andy, can we assume that a child being killed in a ball game with an axe is still way out of bounds? Oh, it definitely is. I think, you know, the uh, if you watch Vikings, that scene where young uh, Ivar the Boneless attacks yeah. another boy and kills him. Yep. The way that you feel when that happens, the way that everyone else reacts when that happens, because yep. that's also a culture of violence in that show. Um, and we as an audience are expecting a culture of violence. Mm-hmm. We're expecting to see it and we enjoy it. Um, but when that happens, it's something a little bit out of the ordinary, a little bit disturbing, <laughs> maybe more yeah. than a little bit. So, Ail and Thord retreat after the attack, but friends of Ail's family and of Grimm's father both grab weapons and a standoff follows. And that nearly breaks into open battle. And this yeah. killing, which is never compensated as far as I could tell, eventually leads to a battle in which seven men are killed, including Grimm's father and uncle. That's bad for their family. Yeah, and this is not treated as a major plot point. The author is more interested in Ail's return home. Uh, his father, Scott Legrim, doesn't react to the news of what's happened at all. Well, Ail's mother, Bera, praises Ail and says that he's showing the promise of becoming skipper of a Viking warship when he's grown. And Ail says, My mother said I would be bought a boat with fine oars, set off with Vikings, stand up on the prow, command the precious craft, then enter port, kill a man, and then... Another. Christina Van Nolken calls the verse the classic expression of the Viking mentality. Well, it's got a great rhythm to it, um, but it's pretty disturbing to hear from a six-year-old. Especially when this kid has just come home from his first killing to his parents, and he's essentially told he's done them proud. Again, the saga doesn't really focus on this, but seven men are going to die. The district will be thrown into chaos. And it's treated as a mere detail by the author. Or more to the point, it's treated as a detail by the characters whose story we're following. True. Scott Legrim appears utterly indifferent to the chaos his son has caused, and Ail's mother actually praises him for having the makings of a true Viking. Mm. Armand Jakobsen has pointed out that if you're inclined toward a psychological reading of this saga, Ail's parents' attitudes go a long way toward explaining Ail's difficult personality as an adult. Mm. He doesn't fall far from the tree, in other words. Right. There's enough in the text to support the idea that this is more active than mere neglect. Ail's from a family of Viking raiders. His brother, uncle, both grandfathers, great-uncles, great-grandfathers. I could keep going. Fostering Ail's talent for violence is part of training him for a certain kind of life. Yeah, but on the other hand, the saga doesn't shy away from the consequences of that violence either. We do learn about that rolling feud vengeance kicked off by Ail's temper tantrum and the names of some of the men killed in the fighting. It costs a community something to produce someone like Ail. Mm-hmm. Hell, it costs a family something to live with people like Ail or Scott Legrim. Absolutely. And that, that had a distinct sound of a segue. Oh, it was nice of you to notice. I noticed that. Uh, yes, the saga jumps forward another six years here. Uh, when we pick up Ail's story again, he's 12. And he's now grown so large that he rivals the biggest and strongest men in the district. Still not a match for Scott Legrim, though. Despite mm-hmm. his age, Scott Legrim's still the strongest man around. 
But Eol and Thord Granison, who's now 19 or 20, are now strong enough together that they can team up against Scott the Grim in wrestling and ball games. Right. And, and I love the finally, idea that old Scott the Grim is still participating in these games <laughs> with the boys. Still reliving his past glory, yeah. right? We all know that, like, that, that 60-year-old who's still out there uh, on the pitch. Yeah. Um, finally, the day comes when the two boys together prove to be a match and then some for the old man. Mm-hmm. After a long day of wrestling, mostly, Scott Legrim starts to get tired, and Ale and Thord gain the upper hand for a moment. Yeah, how long did you say the match was? Long. Uh, long enough that the sun's going down. Oh, well, that's not good. Nope. Uh, so once the sun sets, Scott Legrim grows stronger and wilder. And suddenly he's throwing the boys around, and he smashes Thord against the ground, and Thord's crushed by the blow, and he dies instantly. No. No, 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 no. And then Scott Legrim reaches out and grabs Ale. And the author is really playing this moment for all that it's worth. When Scott Legrim seizes Ale, there's a moment of real tension when you read mm-hmm. this, especially if you haven't read it before. And it's right. pretty remarkable in a saga that has this kid's name on it. I mean, <laughs> you you know it's his saga. Yeah. You you assume he's not going to die at age 12 in a wrestling accident with his unhinged were-berserk of a dad. But right. for a moment. Uh, fortunately, Ail's rescued when his foster mother, Thorgerd Brock, sees what's happening. Thorgerd calls out, You're attacking your own son like a mad beast, Scott Legrim. I like that you, she's kind of Irish because she is a slave woman and very likely from Ireland. Yeah, I didn't actually mean that, but that works out. <laughs> it worked uh, out very well. Oh, Scott Legrim, don't do it. Right. Don't do it. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Uh, now, this is great because Scott Legrim drops Ale immediately. But unfortunately for Thorgard, he then turns and rushes at her. <laughs> oh, poor Brock. And the saga is not called Thorgard's Saga Brock. So this legitimately is a dangerous situation. (laughs) Thorgerd turns and runs and manages to leap into the water near the farm and swims from shore as far as she can. But Scott the Grim, whose strength is now at full frenzy, lifts a boulder and flings it at her in the water. It slams between her shoulder blades and she falls to the bottom of the sea, drowning. Mm. His rage eventually cools down, but Thord and Thorgerd are now both dead. Uh, and Ail's not looking to take this from his father. That evening, when the family sits down to eat their supper, Ail arrives late. Without saying a word, he walks up to Scotlagrim's foreman and punches him so hard he dies. Oh my god. And then he sits down at the table, still without speaking a word, tucks in his napkin, and begins to eat his supper. This scene is just so <laughs> damn awkward, because neither of them says anything. Scott the Grim never says a word about the killing of the foreman, and both men refuse to speak to each other for the entire winter. Now forget the winter. He sat down at the table and ate his dinner. Throughout that entire meal, and I have to assume that a growing boy like Ale eats second helpings. Oh, yeah. And then there's like the cheese course, maybe a little dessert. <laughs> all of this served while Ale and his father, and I assume his mother and sisters, all carefully ignore the slowly cooling corpse next to the table. Well, I mean, this is an Icelandic farm, John. Maybe not multiple <laughs> courses. You might be dr- dramatizing a little bit there. 
Yeah, but only a bit. I mean, so there's no cheese course. But the rest of that is uncomfortably real. <laughs> you really do have to wonder about Bera, right? Ale's mother. This woman has to deal with these two all the time. And now they've both killed members of the household. One of them's lying and, on the floor. <laughs> and ruined the roast. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have uh, Of course, we have to remember, Bera's also the woman who praised Ale for splitting Grim Hegison's head like a ripe melon when he was six. That's true. And she did marry Scotlagrim of her own volition. Yeah, she's I questioned sort of it reaping back in what the, she's sown here. I, I questioned it back in the uh, the episode where they got married, but uh, now it all makes sense, doesn't yeah. it? Right. <laughs> There's no question that this may be, as Jacobson says, the unhappiest home in Iceland that winter. <laughs> uh, what a good quote. I know. Uh, and that stony silence between father and son lasts until spring when a ship sails into view. Carrying on board Ail's older brother Thorolf, the happy, outgoing Thorolf. <laughs> uh, boy, is he in for a treat. <laughs> yeah. And that is where we're going to leave our story. Scott the Grim and Ail sulking over their exchange of cruel deeds, and Thorolf about to return to find his brother and father not exactly on speaking terms for some reason. I hope somebody took care of that poor foreman's body before the spring thaw. Oh, that's gross. So before we uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to return to this theme that I think is nicely built into these first sections of the saga. Um, here at the end of this part of the saga, we see Ale and his father completely estranged from one another, right? Still sharing a home, but not speaking to one another. Neither of them can be all that confident of their self control at this point. I mean, they've just they've both killed members of the household while in the grip of this father and son rage, and since they can't even get along with each other. They really are each alone to deal with the consequences of their shared tendency toward berserk rages. And we were told early in the saga that Kvildulf, Ail's grandfather, also had to isolate himself in the evenings right, because of his condition. And the author suggests that that condition might be due to lycanthropy as well as berserk rages and that thread of trollish DNA woven in there as well. But having to stay away from evening gatherings in this culture is a serious social disability. Definitely, yeah. Right? This is when you bond with your neighbors. You're busy during the day. As you, as we saw with Scott Grimm. Scott, Scott Grimm, God damn it. You've been so <clears> good <throat> about it, though. I know, man. But Jesus. Uh, as we saw with Scott Grimm, like, these, these are men who are very, very busy all day mm -hmm. long, running around, taking care of a dozen things at once. The evening is your time to unwind, to get to know your neighbors, to communicate with each other, kind of just as human beings oh, who share a space. You know, when, when, I, and, when I was in Iceland, I visited the, uh, the Eriksstaðir. Um, I, I, I can't remember mm -hmm. if you've been there or not. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah right. It's, it's, it's a very small space. And everyone, yeah. and it's a lot of people, when they talk about how many people are crammed into that place, it's shocking. Um, they're they're yeah. all there together kind of all night, right? And the men have been running around yeah. all day. But now this is this is a communal moment. And these right. two guys are right. talking to each other and there's this tension. Right. Oh, it's um, terrible. And then you think about Kveldolf, like, you know, night after night, year after year, staying alone on his farm, going to bed early rather than attending these gatherings because he's not sure of what will happen. Right. If he's ever in sort of the public during one of these attacks. Yeah. Uh, now we get strong hints that Scott Legrim and Ale both suffer from that same sort of danger of the loss of self-control in the nighttime hours that uh, Kvoldov had. All three men are condemned to a greater or lesser degree of lives of social isolation. We, I mean, we used were berserk as kind of a joke term. But within the context of this narrative, 
Fellwolf and his descendants live lives built around accommodating their atypical natures. Right? They can't be around their fellow men. And as we'll see in a future episode, I think the saga shows us that they're acting in self-preservation when they do that. Because not everybody in the family will be so cautious, and the consequences will be tragic. As we move into Ail's adulthood and later life, we're going to see those themes of isolation and loneliness repeated again and again. Ail regularly confronts loss. Uh, but even more fundamentally, he struggles his entire life with the isolation of being a marginal figure. Mm. Even as he grows in prominence and wealth, Ale remains mostly aloof from his social context. His forays into the social world, for example, are often crashing failures and occasionally end in vomit and bloodshed. <laughs> yes, they do. Uh, Ale's, yeah, uh, we'll, we can look forward to that uh, next time. Uh, Ale's temper and his atypical appearance, especially when you couple that with the genetic legacy of his father and grandfather's troubles with controlling their strength and their, their frenzied berserk rages, they keep him from engaging fully with the world around him. As we'll see, despite his few close relationships, and he does have some, right, with his brother Thorolf, with his wife and children, with his friend Arnbjorn, uh, who we haven't met yet, but we'll meet soon. Uh, with those In those relationships, Ael has connections, but nevertheless, Ael often seems rootless mm-hmm. and painfully alienated from his world. It's, a, it's something we have to keep an eye on as his character develops. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. Um, Ew, all right, John. Before we, we finish up, I thought we mm-hmm. uh, maybe should open the Saga Thing listener mailbag, if you're willing. <laughs> Is that what we're calling you it? Know, oh, we've been calling it for, for three episodes now. So, yes. I know. I didn't know it was official. <laughs> so, until we come up with something better, I mean, what else are we going to call it? That's uh grown up in the 80s and 90s. Right. When people do these things. The old listener mailbag. That's what yep. it's called. Absolutely. So, so, our first question comes from... Our esteemed listener, Grilled Cheese Gang. (laughs) Oh, I could tell I'm going to like this one. (laughs) That's right. Grilled Cheese Gang writes, Since we briefly revisit Norway and a Scottish tower. Oh, you can't do that to a listener of ours. I thought he was Grilled Cheese Gang. What voice you're giving him? (laughs) I thought it was a very esteemed, uh, noble voice. It should sound more like uh, Pizza the Hut, I think. (laughs) Since we briefly revisit Norway. Pizza the Hut and his friend Grilled Cheese Gang. (laughs) Anyway, so Grilled Cheese Gang writes, Since we briefly revisit Norway and a Scottish tower, I'm kind of curious about architecture. The places Mm. described in Norway sound a lot like Icelandic farmsteads. But is that just a case of the author writing what they know? That's actually a great question. Um, I think we've alluded to this a few times, but I don't think we've ever handled it head on. No, I don't think so. Uh, this, I mean, and this is the danger of doing the podcast this long. I, I have actually forgotten what we've talked about and what we haven't talked about. Yeah, so have I. <laughs> uh, we should really go back and listen to our own podcast. Oh, it would be painful uh, to go back to the early ones. Oh my god, I, I actually have done that occasionally, and it is. It's you just you hear so many things that you wish you could like reach into the past and fix. Yeah. Uh, like anyway, like go the, do this and and save your career, kind of thing. Right. <laughs> Don't spend the next six years doing this with your evenings. Uh, no, uh, when the I think what we can talk about here is that when when the Norwegians uh, emigrated, when they went west, they went by ship. Right, this is not a land voyage mm-hmm. uh, that limits the things they can carry with them. So livestock would have been at a premium in those first years, for example. Yeah, that's not helped by the fact that some of them left Norway in a bit of a hurry, fleeing Harold Fairhair. Right. 
Oh, yeah, no, of course. Uh, and they can't always liquidate their wealth when they flee because Harold, in many cases, had confiscated their land or chattels. Mm-hmm. Now, in most places where the Norwegians went, uh, Ireland or the Orkneys, Hebrides, England, Francia, we saw the Shetlands today. Uh, in those places, they were immigrants. Yeah, that, there's already a dominant culture in place in those in, the, in those right. places, for lack of a better word. Um, and they've got to figure out how to integrate themselves into those communities to assimilate or try to dominate and conquer them, which we'll see in Laxdala Saga when we get there. Right, exactly. And in some places, the Norwegians settle in more or less peacefully. In other places, not so much. But either way, there's already a blueprint for successful farming in the area right? and an infrastructure for things a new farmer would need. There are tools, forges, Locally adapted animals and crops, places to live, all that good stuff. And there's already a network of things like merchants, markets, granaries, you name it, they got it. Right, right. Uh, But the Norwegians who arrive in Iceland have none of that. They move into an island that's either totally uninhabited or maybe housing a few dozen Irish monks. Right. There's no infrastructure, but there's also no competition. That's a serious trade-off, though. No one to supply the deficiencies in your materials, but on the other hand, no real competition for what resources are there, at least for the first generation. Right. Uh, and that includes land, right? Free land is an unbeatable asset for a relocating oh, farmer, right? Especially farmers who haven't been able to bring their wealth with them. Uh, but the question was about how the farms in Iceland or how buildings in Iceland differed from the ones in Norway. Uh, And the answer, at least at first, is not much. In terms of uh, the physical layout and the organization of the buildings, not much at all at first. Uh, See, even when we're talking about farm construction, at first just sounds ominous. Well, it's meant to be. Uh, The buildings were made in the same manner as Norwegian farms or buildings, and the layout and the array of outbuildings would be pretty similar. The problem is that those building materials that were so abundant in Norway, especially things like long, straight lumber for structural use, were much harder to find in Iceland. And the available wood supplies rapidly dwindled. Yeah, And that would have affected not just the physical construction of the houses, but also things like the material used to heat a farmhouse, the availability of wood for tool making, fence building, and so on. Everything about farm life would have been affected by all this. And we haven't mentioned earthquakes, land shifting underneath them, sure. uh, which, uh, you know, all those like kind of firmer structure buildings don't hold up well against. That's a very good point. Uh, and those changes, right, the, 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 the dearth of wood, the dearth of strong lumber, that comes about very quickly. Absolutely. Within a generation or two. Yeah. Now, Icelandic settlement, we have to say, was, a, was frankly a catastrophe for the island's ecology. Mm-hmm. One research paper calls this the settlement package. It's a collection of high-impact, environmentally disastrous practices that denuded the landscape and left the soil vulnerable to further erosion. Right. 10th century Icelanders had to learn fairly quickly to adapt to the building materials of their environment. And we should say that's not necessarily as traumatic as it sounds. Norwegians were accustomed to using a variety of materials in building their homes, Mm -hmm. too. So it's not like the Icelanders were starting from scratch. Uh, They knew how to construct houses with turf or peat, uh, with packed earth walls, for example, right, which would rapidly become the standard for Icelandic construction. And those buildings could still be quite large and complex, with storerooms and bedchambers, even latrines built in. Uh, The main difference is that if you surveyed 100 buildings in Norway and 100 buildings in Iceland, you'd find significantly more wood used in the Norwegian buildings on average. Yeah, so when we talk about 
Scott Legrim, uh So when we talked about Scott Legrim settling his farm on a solid financial footing by using several different revenue streams, that's really just another way that Icelanders showed their adaptability. Developing new techniques for construction was one part of thriving in this new place. So the short version, mm-hmm. I guess, is that Icelanders knew Norwegian constructions and would have loved to repeat those in Iceland as much as they could. <laughs> um, but they also knew yeah. their own. Yeah. And writers are er- likely to err on the side of making things sound more Icelandic, right. but probably not overly so. Right. Um, they are traveling back and mm-hmm. forth. There is a lot of contact between the two cultures. What we do see in multiple sagas is an awareness that dearth of good wood in Iceland meant that Icelanders were reliant on imports of wood from Norway or from Europe or from Vinland so that new construction could be possible, especially for making things that for one reason or another needed wood frames, uh, churches, for example, or ships or high gabled buildings. Ships. I mean, that that's a whole subject of its own. Yeah, we'll have to cover that. But uh, another time, another time. Uh, There's one more thing I wanted to say about what else might have been different on an Icelandic farm from a very early period, um, which is about really the way the space is used, right? The way the farm is organized and run by the women who came to Iceland. There were a large number of non-Norwegian women and a few men who joined the settlers either right away or early on. Yeah, we've seen references to this here and there. Uh, Remember that community of Irish Christians in Kjaldasingasaga, for example? Oh, yes, exactly. Good point. Uh, But more broadly, the Icelanders brought women into their homes, right, as wives, servants, nurses, concubines, you name it. And those women, by both tradition and practice, were in charge of the running of the farmhouse. And it's worth saying at this point that a lot of those women are not Norwegian women. Uh, The majority of the people that settled in Iceland were men. Uh, They went out Mm -hmm. raiding to find the women that would uh, kind of populate Iceland. Right. So places, including the other places where the Norwegians end up, but places like England and Ireland and so forth are being raided routinely. And one of the things that the Icelanders are looking for is wives. Uh, Now, those wives might not have been directly in charge of the physical building's construction, although then again, in some cases, they might have been. Uh, But they certainly directed how things were organized inside. So Iceland, in that respect, was more, for lack of a better word, multicultural. Uh, in the way that a farmhouse might be organized and run than would have been the case in Norway. So that's a long roundabout way of maybe answering your question, Grilled Cheese Gang. Um, But with a name like Grilled Cheese Gang, how can you... Mr. Gang. Mr. Gang. uh, What did you expect from us? (laughs) If there's anything (laughs) else you'd uh, like to know, just follow up with us and we'll try to stick to the point next time. Uh, All right. Have we got time for another one? Sure. Do you wanna you wanna ask me a question for once? Uh, gladly. So Brody Rosenfeld sent us an email. An email, John. An email. <laughs> yes, an email. See, I knew we weren't wasting our time sharing that email address at the end of each episode. Finally, that's reassuring to know that I'm not the only dinosaur <laughs> out there. Well, what did the uh, Brodysaurus want to know? Well, he writes. I've been enjoying your coverage of Ale's Saga. Great job so right, far. Thanks, Brody. That's it. Uh, no, he's not finished. Uh, one thing has been on my mind. During Kvaldos Last Stand, it's mentioned that he's wielding a double-bladed axe. I was always under the mm. impression that these were not used at all during the Viking Age and viewed them in a similar light to a horned helmet. Uh-huh. So, is this an anachronism? Or is the Brodosaurus crazy? Here we go. Another weapon question. 
It takes me back to the days of Gunnar's Atger and the Halberd, the great debates of 2016. Yeah, Viking weapons get people excited. Well, this is a similar situation. Uh, we are working from Bernard Scudder's translation of Ale Saga, so we typically rely on his expertise while preparing. Uh, when questions do come up about the word choice or the meaning of something that we're particularly interested in, well, we, we do always check the Icelandic. Right, but to be honest, we didn't think much about that axe when preparing for the last episode. Yeah, but it's a great question. And Brodysaurus is absolutely right. There's no evidence of Vikings using double-bladed axes. Yeah, I'm assuming so do we do we believe that the translation has to be the issue there uh-huh. then? Right? The author, the original author doesn't really say double-bladed axe. Absolutely, yeah. The the original says that and uh, forgive my uh, bad pronunciation here, but it reads, which translated literally reads, Kveldov had in hand a bruntrol. Bruntrol? Mm-hmm. Interesting. I didn't expect the word troll to pop up in there. Yeah, it's pretty cool, actually. Uh, the word is essentially a kenning for a really badass weapon. Bruntroll nice. means Bernie troll or a coat of mail troll, mm-hmm. a mail troll. I see. So the idea is that he's holding a weapon that's a troll to a coat of mail. That's right. Something that destroys it easily. Right? A destroyer of Bernie's. A really badass weapon. It, it also, I, I think, could be the name of the weapon that kind of in transmission, you know, if this thing existed and there's stories about mm-hmm. it, might have just been the name of the weapon that gets then transmitted. But it does, the name right. of this, the, the, the Bruntroll, does that that idea of a weapon called the Bruntroll does appear elsewhere, which I'll talk about in a second. Mm-hmm. But it's a very cool name, Bruntroll, right? Zoega yeah. defines the Bruntroll as a type of halberd. Oh, that's quite a cop-out. Mm-hmm. It leads us right back at the old halberd question. Yeah, I was disappointed as well, but not surprised with the old halberd. Do Cleesby and Vigvison offer anything better? What do you think they offer? Well, I think they say it's a type of halberd. That's exactly what they say. They say <laughs> it's a type of halberd. So uh-huh. I uh, I wasn't satisfied with that. So I started doing a little bit. Well, of, you shouldn't be. No. So I started doing investigating in the databases at the university here. And uh, mm-hmm. I came upon a great article by Jan H. Orkis. Uh, it's called Pole Weapons in the Sagas of the Icelanders. And in that mm-hmm. article, he compares the literary and archaeological sources. That's a good title, but I wonder if he considered one man's halberd is another man's halberd. I doubt that he considered that one. How about Otgirs and Bruntros? Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> that one lacks confidence, but it's so accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think his title is pretty straightforward. It gets the job done nicely, so it's a smart choice. But the article is from Volume 4 of the Acta Periodica Duelitorum uh, from 2015. I had no idea there was a journal mm. called the Acta Periodica <laughs> Duelitorum, but uh, I was pleasantly surprised that it exists. There you go. He looks, Your day was not wasted. No. He looks at set. Well, I had an English department meeting, so maybe... <laughs> Part of it was wasted. <laughs> oh, now he looks at uh, <laughs> he looks at several different Viking weapons from the sagas, including the Hogspjot, the Atger, the Kessia, the Krokspjot, the Bruntrol, and the Flane. Now, Eil uses his uh, Kessia. That's a lot. right. Yes. So you have you have looked into weapons in Eil saga. I'm proud of you, John. 
Well, I've just looked at the saga. <laughs> so this is bound to come up, uh, so it's worth talking about. The Bruntroll is used by Kveldolf, uh, if you remember last time, to kill Halvard in a pretty gruesome manner mm-hmm. that should earn some recognition for Best Bloodshed when we get there. Yeah, I don't know that it'll win, but it's worth considering. Uh, if I recall, Kveldolf slices through Halvard's helmet and into his skull, and the blade sinks in up to the shaft. Exactly. And that detail struck me as odd when I was thinking about the weapon as an axe, as the the mm-hmm. translation we're working with uh, describes it. Mm. It doesn't make as much sense as a pole weapon would in this context. Plus, I mean, Kveldolf then needs to have enough leverage to be able to yank back with enough force to swing Halvard's body overboard. Remember, he does this kind of like jerking motion. It's a, right. It's a version of the Hillary slam. That's how I envision it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's that it's that same kind of you know almost berserk rage, yeah. uh, which of course is what Kvalov is doing. But a double-bladed axe doesn't really work there. No, no, but a pole weapon of some sort does. So yep. the Bruntroll is mentioned in several other sagas, including Lakstala saga and Valadiot saga. So in Lakstala saga, Hrut, uh, who we'll meet when we eventually get there, uh, he uses one to kill Eldgrim from behind. It says he raises the Bruntroll and then puts it through Eldgrim's back between the shoulders so that the coat of mail was torn open and the Bruntroll went through Eldgrim's chest. So this is a mail destroyer worthy of its Absolutely, name. Absolutely, yes. And in Valaliot Saga, Lyot uses the Bruntroll to keep attackers from getting too close. Which again suggests a pole weapon. Mm-hmm. Right, That's the key to a pole weapon is keeping your enemies at a distance. So Halbert isn't a Bad translation, I guess. If we assume a very general definition for halberd, yes. Uh, But it's worth trying to be a little more specific. So here's what we know. According to all this different evidence, the Bruntrol is known for its ability to slice through helmets and mail coats. So it's got to be very, very sharp. And it must also be mounted on a shaft of some length since it gets buried up to the shaft. It provides leverage. It keeps enemies at a distance. And it can go all the way through a body from behind. Right. These are all fairly un-double-bladed axe-like qualities. Exactly. That's how I'm thinking of it. Now, Orchids, uh, he concludes the same thing. It it, it really can't be a long-shafted axe, he says, because the usage just doesn't match. He says, we must think of another pole weapon that is not a spear. And that's Mm -hmm. where it kind of gets complicated once again, because as he points out... Apart from various spears and axes, there's no evidence of other pole weapons in the Viking Age. Therefore, if the Bruntroll is neither a spear nor an axe, it is either an unknown weapon, so rare that no archaeological artifact survives to modern days, or it has to be an anachronistic weapon, known to the 13th Hmm. century authors but posterior to the Viking Age. Interesting. So that would be like a halberd. Exactly. Although he does add that Hjalmar Falk concludes that it must be an anachronistic or unknown double-bladed axe or twibill. Oh, it's great. So we've come full circle. Back to the double-bladed axe, yeah. I don't buy <laughs> that it's a double-bladed axe. It, it, when you look at the uh, ways it's used in the texts mentioned, it it just doesn't work as a double-bladed axe. Right. The Bruntroll that Kveldolf carries is a hacking and thrusting weapon. Right. No, but this, this to me, this makes sense. I mean, we, remember, we eventually concluded with... Um, Gunnar in Yal Saga, that he must be using a weapon that would be an axe blade on one side and some kind of a spike or a hook on the other mm, side. That's true. Right, in order to do the things that he was doing. 
And this feels like another one of those where it's either a bespoke weapon that has been kind of created for the fighting style of a specific person, like a berserk who occasionally can fling bodies around. Uh, or, yeah, that it's an anachronistic weapon and that it's being sort of created uh, or at least retrofit by the author into the story. Yeah, uh, I like it. Uh, so the gist of this is that no matter what this uh, Brunthrow might be, the fact that it is definitely a pole weapon probably makes it anachronistic. Right. It's definitely a pole weapon. I can't see any other way of reading it, but uh, mm-hmm. there are no pole arms in the Viking Age as far as we know at this point. So... This is likely a weapon familiar to contemporary audiences, but not really used in the 9th and 10th centuries when this particular saga is set. Well, that took a while, but uh, I hope the journey was worth it. It's a bit more Tolkien than C.S. Lewis, but we got there in the end. Oh, there you go. Uh, And uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Saga Thing, speaking of endings. um, Thanks, as always, for listening, since otherwise we'd just be two middle-aged lunatics haranguing each other about feud cycles and the cargo capacity of Nors or... Double-bladed axes or whatever. Uh, honestly, the cargo capacity of Nords is something that I am fascinated with. I've looked into. Well, abso- as you ought and to I, be. And I have not found a reasonable solution to my questions about it. But that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Well, there's going to be a ship episode at some point in the I future. seriously doubt it. Please write us and with, let us... With many, many shipload jokes. <laughs> so please write us and let us know if you have any questions for us or any comments about the saga as it's developing so far. How's Ail's personality shaping up so far? What are you expecting when we return to the Norwegian kings in the next episode? How long is too long to leave a corpse on the floor during supper? Can you believe we aren't even halfway through this monster yet? (laughs) Oh, I can believe it. (laughs) I suspect we've got eight or nine episodes to go. Yeah. Well, that's a terrifying thought to end on. (laughs) Now, don't forget that you can reach us at our Twitter account at SagaThingPod, on Facebook at SagaThingPodcast, and we are now on Instagram where we are also SagaThingPodcast. Please uh, follow us there just so we have the the right numbers. (laughs) Or any. Or any numbers. You can also check us out on WordPress, where we reside at www.sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. And as Brody Soros knows, we also have an email account, sagathingpodcast.gmail.com, in case you have longer questions that need answering. Thank you for justifying my faith in email, Brody. Um, (laughs) The other option is you can etch your message onto a game ball backwards, throw it at Andy's back really, really hard, and then wait until the bruise appears and I can read the message in photo negative. Oh, why do I have to be the one that gets hit? Well, think it through, man. If they throw it at my back, how am I going to read it? Fair enough. And <laughs> thanks again to Matt Smith for his portraits of our characters. And thanks to Don Haim for the music that we are using in the background of so many things here. And a very special thanks to Sebastian, mm-hmm. who helped us out with the voice of Ail Scott the Grimson as a young boy. That's my son, and I think he did a pretty good job though he lacks the sinister edge of Ale. (laughs) We will be back in a couple of weeks with the adventures of Ale and his brother Thorolf and the introduction of many, many new people, some of whom, minor spoiler alert here, maybe will get vomited on. That's right. Always lean with a vomit reference. Classy. Until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now.
Now, sometimes I just look at you when you're talking and I get lost in your eyes. Well, I mean, 